Hello, welcome to Girls Gone Canon. You're listening to A Song of Ice and Fire, Patreon teaser, episode four, The Maiden Vault. This episode was made possible by Girls Gone Canon patrons at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. I'm Eliana. I'm Chloe. We're hosts. You guys know who we are. We don't... We host this thing. <laughs> We're maidens. <laughs> we are not... I don't know if this is about... Anyways, you guys, this Patreon episode, episode number 18, is about the Maiden Vault from A Song of Ice and Fire. We kept a little His Dark Materials themed last month. Uh, this month we're going to Song of Ice and Fire, and uh, we'll see what happens next month. We'll see. Yeah, anything could happen. So, as we go into the Maiden Vault, we wanted to queue up this discussion by talking about the original Maiden Vault that inspired George R. R. Martin's portrayal of the Maiden Vault. Yeah, this is really big. I don't think a lot of people have covered this original lore, but it actually originated in 2017. Some say 2016, depending on the so Interesting. Ice and Fire Con. Fair. You guys, we're being very facetious. No, we're being Obviously, very serious. George R. Martin. This is the most oh serious. God. This is the most serious of business. Uh, obviously, George R. R. Martin wrote about the main vault far before we attended Ice and Fire Con, but... The big joke uh, goes that we rented a room at Ice and Fire Con. Me and a friend, the Bear Air, Daisy Mormont on Twitter, had a room, really nice room that we kept getting at Ice and Fire Con. It was at a location in the mountains. Uh, it's the same place Dirty Dancy was filmed. I actually watched that documentary on Netflix or whatever. <coughs> There's your free shout out, Netflix. Sponsor us. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, me and Elaine got a room. It was going great. Met a bunch of awesome people. Actually, I got to meet Eliana. For the first time. That was awesome. Yes. It feels like ages ago because it was. And our room was awesome. And we called it the Maiden Vault because it very much so had a beautiful slant roof. Beautiful, what, like brick, right? Yeah, shutter windows. Gorgeous, gorgeous. It definitely felt like a Maiden Vault. And better, we didn't allow boys to room with us. That was the important part about the Maiden Vault. Yes, I did not stay in the Maiden Vault. I, you know, moved in and outwards. I was a just a mere humble servant. Oh my god. <laughs> and, oh my god. But the Maiden Vault was the, the location of much fun. Uh, after festivities, I remember one morning, I came by the Maiden Vault together with Anne, aka SweetYFT on Twitter, and that was, I think, the first time all three of us had like met. Like I had met Anne on the drive up to Ice and Fire Con, uh, before Jeff actually agreed to join this trip up, it was just like, what, me and, and Scat. And I was like, I'm going to get in a car with like two complete strangers <laughs> from the internet and go on a four-hour drive. Anyway, um, and then we all exchanged makeup. We took some of the makeup that we don't really use, and then yeah. we traded some of it. It was truly the maiden vault, yeah. you guys. Very maiden things were happening in there. It's what Marjorie and her ladies are probably doing right this moment. Being like, oh, you guys, uh, I don't use this color pop highlighter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marjorie's out there like, I can't do black charcoal for my eyes anymore. Can yeah. anyone take this? Pretty much. And you're like, oh, I realize that my undertones don't really work for this. 
<laughs> this pomegranate juice, unfortunately, has too many cool tones for my lipstick. No. I mean, um, I'm, I say all these things, but these are actually things that I honestly actually say. I'm not making fun <laughs> of anyone. This is who I am. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's actually part of how Chloe and I bonded in the first place. Make up in a song of ice and fire via Twitter DM. It was true love. We yeah. didn't even know, but it was. It was. Now, here we are. Well, the real Maiden Vault is not just the friends that we made along the way at Ice and FireCon. If you guys are uh, looking for something fun to do this spring, please come hang out with us at Ice and FireCon. There's so many panels. Happens uh, end of April in an awesome state park in Ohio, and we'll be there. So it's important. Uh, well, before we can talk about the queens that never were, the ladies of the Maiden Vault who deserve better, we got to give you guys a little context and talk about some Targaryen kings. Ugh, I know. Haven't we done enough of that? Um, but first, I'll talk about my son, Aegon III. I love that we are going to end up backwards someday. We're going to cover Aegon III in full someday. But it's important to bring him up here while we're at it, because the maidens we're about to talk about come from his very gloomy Hot Topic clearance rack line. Aegon the Unlucky, Aegon the Unhappy, the Broken King, the Dragon's Bane. He married Daenerys Valerian at a very subtle push from Bela and Reyna Targaryen after Jahera Targaryen probably also suffered from a subtle push, if well, you remember. because she. <laughs> I'm sorry! <laughs> God damn it. I'm just making sure you know your histories, because Baylor burned them. <gasps> Uh, but yeah, he was happy with Daenerys Valerian for a while. Sad about Jahera, obviously. So, so happy for long enough that he produced several children. Rhaenyra Targaryen's grandchildren, to be exact, first of her name. Darren I, Baylor I, Diana Targaryen, Reyna Targaryen, Elena Targaryen, all of them came from this real sad dude. His brother, Viserys, had a couple of kids you might know about. Uh, Aegon IV. Nerys and Aemon the Dragon Knight. So these are some close-knit families that we're going to be following. Get your family trees in order. Yes. And so we're going to start off with that second son, Baylor, not Darren the First. Darren the First was pretty interesting. Um, so Baylor the First Targaryen, who is the worst Baylor. He's definitely not as good as Baylor Breakspear. Absolutely. Who is forever prince and maybe also king of my heart. That's not true. Um, but it sounded good in the moment. I got really caught up there for a second. Baylor was <laughs> the ninth Targaryen king. And he was into burning books. It makes me wonder if he was at all influenced by Qin Shi Huang. The first emperor of that dynasty, he was a little cruel, which Baylor wasn't known publicly to be that we know of. Uh, but he did burn Confucian scholar books, and he also ordered 460 Confucian scholars to be burned alive. Baylor burned the testimony of Mushroom by Mushroom, which we can obviously imagine why. Dragons, Worms, and Wyverns, their unnatural history by Septon Barth, is a more interesting burn that Baylor went for. He claimed that Barth was more a sorcerer than a Septon, and that the book alone convinced him of this is very telling. Like, that must have been one hell of a book. I would like to read that book. Yeah, and it sounds like some people might be trying to acquire this book, the the current A Song of Ice and Fire 
books. I know that some people theorize that that's one of the books that, what, the Faceless Men are after or whatever. And people have theorized that, like, Danny has it or something. Yeah, I do think that's interesting. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. But first, let's talk about uh, Baylor dying because, you know, he had a he had a life of things and been like, fuck that. He died after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Some say, though, that he might have been poisoned by his uncle Viserys. Somebody just slapped that boy silly. Yeah. And the religious parallels, like you mentioned, are obviously very heavy with Baylor. George kind of just slams this one, right? Like, he just kind of really lays it on thick because uh, you get the Matthew kind of line of, you know, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But the joke is that Baylor is no son of God. He's no God, and the stones won't turn into bread for him. When we see Baylor in some of these modern narrative stories of A Song of Ice and Fire, or in these meta-analyses like Sansa and Tyrion participate in with Oberyn and Elaria, uh, it's, it's just pretty obvious that he was just a man. The idea of an uncle poisoning his nephew, like Viserys with Baylor, who was king, uh, not taking action to take the throne, like Tyrion with Joffrey appearing in their own stories, very present, very prevalent, the bitter uncle and his own wrathful nephew themselves kind of show. Um, you can add the extra layer even when you think about what Aegon IV killing his dad, possibly it was rumored, like Tyrion killing Tywin, another interesting kind of parallel, but hmm. yeah, it's interesting to me that we hmm. learned about it in A Storm of Swords through Sansa. This is kind of what I'm noticing is the pattern of when George really, really detailed out the Maiden Vault and some of these details of the princesses. He started writing it more toward A Storm of Swords and toward uh, the Hedge Knight. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, yes, he very well might have been poisoned by Viserys, but, like, there's a strong party yeah. that just wants to believe this motherfucker died because of his stupid-ass, like, megalomaniac, like, messiah complex. Like, Oh, yeah. And for his fast, I'm going to throw it out there. He had bread and water. He didn't even really fucking commit. All right? Like, as you said, it's it, it's a very obvious homage to, to Jesus, right, in the wilderness. And I guess Baylor tried to do that. But the thing is, like you said, Baylor is not a god. He's just a man. Stupid, shitty small man and i hate him and it's because like Same. like he did a lot of other things in his life right it's referenced even within the books of shit that he did like i don't know endure and, and you know what that's great i'm like kudos to you baylor you got to live a whole fucking ass life and do other things before this because you weren't imprisoned for a decade by your dictator brother like congratulations look at all the things people can accomplish when they're not imprisoned by their dictator brother and when you think about it that way he really didn't accomplish shit i mean Darren did but baylor sure didn't i he built like a building but like anyone can fucking do that yeah he didn't even do it he hired um, like contractors you know anyone can fucking do that oh exactly so next we have Aegon the fourth yeah and Aegon the fourth is just useless just useless. Next, next we had Viserys II, but like in terms of people with proximity to the Maiden Vault, we have Aegon IV. I guess, and we really don't even want to have proximity to him. You just don't. You don't want that. Um, you guys know Aegon IV. You know, Aegon's mistresses, his nine. Nine mistresses, his bastards. He legitimized them when he died, which, you know, caused fucking chaos. 
you know, put the whole realm into disarray. Um, gave the opportunity to Diana, Dana, however you want to pronounce her name. <laughs> I like, uh, I like Diana. Gives it a little drama, which feels very much so like her. But you know that that courtship, that right there has put some uh, blood through the realm. For sure. I mean, I, first of all, I heard corn chip for no reason. Um, that corn chip is delicious. <laughs> um, yeah, Aegon the Fourth. I don't know. Kind of suck. Uh, so I mean, what I have to say about Aegon the Fourth is like in the world of Ice and Fire, we have a lot of interesting depictions of him. One of them is even him as a child and a baby, and the depiction is it's like a family portrait. And Viserys the Second. Looks a hell of a lot like James Franco in this image. I will not. I will not be swayed. Just as again, I will reiterate my discovery that in the world of ice and fire, in the Dornish section, Aegon the First, the Conqueror, looks like Ted Danson, and also mm-hmm. earlier on in that section with Miriam Martell and Rainey's looks like Ariana Grande. Um, anyways. Uh, there's also the Brangelina. Yes, yes. Allie and Jaharis picture, right? Is that who it is? That might be one of them as well. Um, anyways, I just wanted to point out Aegon the Fourth, James yes. Franco's son. That's yeah. the insight. Good insight. Thank That's you. That's probably the second most important thing about him. The first most important thing about him are his mistresses. Yes. So one, his mistresses. Two, he's James Franco's son. I just can't bring myself to care about James Franco. Um, I can't either, uh, but I just think it's fascinating. Can't unsee it. Nope. Well, it's time we move into the actual maidens, the stars of the show. Speaking of the woman being more interesting than these horrid kings. God, it's just like, they're all garbage. They if are. they were better, Jaehaerys is the best one they had. And even Let he, it sink in. Even he, even he was wrong. Yeah, even he had some rough spots, okay? Uh, even the best parts of him were Alisan. Baylor Breakspear, whom I still stand. Yep. He was great. That's about it. But he died. But That's about it. They all die. But he was good. I like him. I stand by him. And these Maidens and the Vault, I mean, they were, you know, also very good. Bright, bright young ladies. And the Maiden Vault was called the Court of Beauty. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah at first it was called the court of beauty then everyone was like now we know what this fucking is all right and it's very (laughs) much a continuation of george's exploration of that trope of the princess in the tower that he loves to explore through like you know we talked about it a little back then with sansa and arianne but anyway the maiden vault yeah it was created allegedly uh the Maiden Vault and the girls being sent to the Maiden Vault by Baylor was allegedly to preserve their innocence, but a lot of people also kind of perpetuated the rumor that it was to prevent the king's temptations. Viserys and the princesses, of course, protested against this move, but they were on the losing side, and they were placed there, along with other maidens that lords and knights sent to the Red Keep to curry favor with Baylor. At the time of their internment, Dana was 16, Reyna 14, and Elena 11. Yeah, I just want everyone to imagine, like, just imagine being Baylor, just being Baylor, and imprisoning 
your 11-year-old sister. And I want to remind everyone, right, they were in the Maiden Vault for 10 years. Like, this wasn't, like, a fucking, like, minute, all right? They were there for 10 years. They were, like, mole children. Oh, my God. They were, it was, like, Kimmy Schmidt. They were Dragon Kimmy Schmidt. They were. Unbreakable. They're alive, yeah. damn it. I mean, this is like, imagine if George's original outline stayed the same. This is Sansa, like, just being captive in King's Landing her entire life, you know? I mean, they weren't even, they probably didn't even get to go riding once they were put into that. And the next person we're going to talk about, Diana, I mean, that would kill her. Could you imagine that? Like, that's your only hobby and your spirit's just broken. All you do is sit there and stare at these other ladies and sew and... I mean, right now it actually kind of sounds good, but I'm in different circumstances job-wise than these ladies were, okay? Yeah. I mean, it's different when you get to choose, you know? Yeah, exactly. I would like the choice. And, uh, I mean, the writing was really on the vault... Or the wall, Whoa. I guess, Whoa. with these that Baylor was, you know, cray-cray. He was uh, obviously crazy, but also I think we're going to get into he was consumed by trappings of power, which is exactly precisely what we continually hear when it comes to the Targaryens. And I think that's why I don't want to say Baylor was crazy. Like, maybe there's an element because of the Vipers, yeah. as some people say, but like... It's just so insidious that I feel like craziness absolves him of how horrific... Same. Oh, thank is. God. That's why thank I God, hate Because I feel like that's what Reyna was created for. But it, like, as another part of Baylor for you to go, oh, mm-hmm. like, she was fine. She was just religious. He was just religious. And religion can't just be a cover for some of the, you know, atrocities of the world. No. And we're going to talk, again, as Chloe said, we're going to get to that in a minute. First, let's talk about Dana. Who I say is Dana because... I just feel like it. <laughs> well, like I said, I feel like at the age of like six, she was like, it's actually Diana, you know, just really dramatically, just like her dad would have done dramatically. Here's a quote from the World of Ice and Fire paragraph set us up. Dana is the most famed of the three sisters and was the most loved for her beauty as much as her fierce courage. She was known as a skilled horsewoman, a fearsome archer with the Dornish bow her brother Darren brought back from his conquests, and she was practiced at riding at rings, though she was never allowed to ride an attorney despite her efforts to the contrary. Dana quickly became known as the Defiant, for she was the most restless of the three sisters in her imprisonment, and on three separate occasions escaped disguised as a servant or one of the small folk. She even contrived, toward the end of Baylor's reign, to get herself a child, though some might say it would have been better had she been less defiant for all the trouble that son brought to the realm. Yes, never consummated that marriage, which I think that right there is enough to uh, to speculate about. So... Gonna throw it out there and we'll get to as we talk more, we'll see reasons why this might be. I kind of wonder, like, is her name inspired by the Greek mythological figure Danae, another princess locked in a tower? She was locked there by her father because of a prophecy that said that any son she has would slay him, and he was like, you know, 
can't have a son if you don't get pregnant. But turns out, you know, the Greek gods weren't about that. They were like, I'm going to come into your tower and be a golden shower uh, upon you and impregnate you that way. So Aegon gave Diana a golden shower. I honestly don't put it past them. So with that, though, I do think there is a very, very strong connection there. Because, I mean, I think that is probably one of the things Baylor feared. Right? Mm -hmm. He didn't want to, slash couldn't, slash whatever. But what's scarier than him not giving her a child is someone else giving her a child, uh, which we learn is the biggest fear in the entire universe. Catelyn perpetuates it. Everyone perpetuates it. I mean, what happened with Diana the Defiant and Aegon the Fourth is kind of everyone's worst nightmare, you know? Yeah, he like as freaked far the as fuck out ruling. even when Nerys... When Darius had two children, they died. But yep, yep, yep. Uh, it's just such a different world, you know. Fucking your relatives, I guess. It must be so hard fucking your siblings. It seems like good thing I you guess. and I, you and I, have been spared of this tragic yoke. I'm so glad <laughs> because, like, I don't like doing things that are hard. I just wouldn't it be so difficult after a while that you would just quit. Quit having siblings? No, sex with them. <gasps> yeah, it sounds like it's <sighs> difficult, dramatic. I don't know. Anyway. Well, I'm glad Dana didn't do it. She didn't. She Not for like lack of trying a little bit, because she tried to shame her brother. Um, but the marriage was still never consummated. Dana, though, described as very athletic, willful. Good horse riding in archery. Kind of makes me feel like she got, she's got some Lyanna Stark vibes going on, right? Maybe, maybe a Shades of Arya vibes, but definitely some Lyanna Stark ones. Oh no, totally Lyanna Stark vibes. As the uh, legal proprietor of all that is Lyanna Stark. I don't think I can actually say that legally, but that's fine. I think uh, there's you a can Martin. here. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I say what I want. Uh, there's a so big Martin that we're going to quote a couple times from 2006. We'll link it in the episode that talks about Dana being Targaryen to the bone, that she was strong, beautiful, willful, and that she had a wild, untamed mane of hair, and she had a pair of sparkling purple eyes and a fearless, I'll-dare-anything smile, that she was wild, almost from birth, lithe and athletic, a runner, a climber, and an expert horsewoman. I was born to ride a dragon, she liked to say, but the dragons were dead. She wasn't allowed to joust, she hunted, she shot bow and arrow, and she worshipped her dad and idolized her brother, Darren. Uh, she was dramatic, and she dressed as much. She wore black like her dad all the time as a kid, and then after Baylor refused to consummate their marriage, that's when she decided to shame him until he consummated it by wearing white. She's like, I'm just going to dress like a virgin then the rest of my life. And he was like, cool, that actually kind of turns me on, so you're getting closer. And she's like, that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, and it, it still never fixed anything. He's still like, good job. Congrats. Yeah, he's like, good job, you're doing what I want you to do. Uh, I think the little we do get about her and about her identity is really interesting in what George has said. I want to circle back in a few minutes about it, but her clothing and looks especially are noted here purposefully. Yeah, we get, and a lot of it has to do with, like, the Sospeak Martin that we're citing is one that George gave to Amok to mm -hmm. create uh, actual visual depictions of the three sisters, but, you know, whatever. I'd say that's pretty telling if you really want it to capture the essence. True, true. But I mean, like, that's part of why. 
that yeah. there's so much visual information because it was literally going to be drawn, but whatever. Anyways, Dana managed to escape the Maiden Vault three times. <laughs> Upon the death of Baylor, Dana actually, you know, had a shot at the throne, and some said that as the next child of Aegon III, she would have been next in line. Uh, but because she had spent so much time in the Maiden Vault during those 10 years, she didn't have enough of the political alliances. She couldn't like spend the time nurturing them that she would need if she were to seize the throne. And on top of that, people still, they were like, oh, people still remember the last time a woman claimed the Iron Throne. And I'm like, this is so, such fucking bullshit because for some reason everyone's like, oh no, there's a huge war. It was so violent the last time a woman tried to claim the Iron Throne. Well, you know, why doesn't anyone remember all the dumb fucking times? Alright, the dumb shit. Every time the men claim the Iron Throne, like, let me just say, Magor. Magor the <laughs> Cruel. Aegon II, who was a dumbass. It's really his fault that the war started, and I stand behind that in many ways. Um, or literally, Baylor Bookburner, who died yesterday. Like, all of these are great examples for, like, Oh, women are such failures. They shouldn't hold the throne. Well, what about all of these <laughs> examples? Yet, yet, done. And the thing is, is it's like, it's not even about gender so much as the idea of a woman taking the throne opens the throne up. So it gets us a right. step closer to the idea of maybe not even a Targaryen on a throne and maybe sure. someday not even a throne. <gasps> Gasp! You know, like, crazy. That is something that, like, we had somewhat discussed, like, in the Valerian episode, right? Like, like that opens, as you said, the door for, like, male king consorts, right? But at the same time, just, like, stupid. Anyway. Yeah, and it turns out that after a while, I mean, the Targaryens took the throne by blood and fire once, and then it stayed the same ever since. Well, Obviously, Daenerys' claim is very much so backed up by blood and fire. Um, congrats, Danny, because that's really good. Step because one. Because it's good defense. Like, it's a good, you know, like, remember when Ned had the paper shield and Cersei ripped it? Well, you can't rip Daenerys' shield, is what I'm saying. Yeah. You could say no to her. You can maybe but pierce see how that goes. Yeah. But it takes a lot more effort. Yeah, we're going to see how that goes. You can say no. And regardless, even if it's Pierce, you know, everyone still knows, like, wow, you know what seems legitimate? You know what seems like real, like everyone can see it? A dragon. Can't You can't Ugh. fake that. <laughs> yeah. Most of the people thought that they couldn't have controlled Dana if she had been backed by them, especially because then she has this mystery bastard son yeah. that, um, you know, she won't tell anyone whose it is, but... We know whose it is. Yeah, it does come out, but I, I do think, I do think that's one of the biggest points, right? It's that they mm -hmm. felt they couldn't control her, and that's a big part of why she got passed over. And that's a big part of why they were in the Maiden Vault. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and like from the Maiden Vault, as you said, mystery bastard son, which you know she kind of has this legacy as not she wasn't the last of her line to be part of that primogeniture dispute, right? Yeah, the Blackfires. In fact, Oops. we're probably dealing with a Blackfire right now uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, at this point, I feel like everybody could just pick a side, but one side is the right side. And the other side's the left side. <laughs> <laughs> right and left, Eric and Narek. Yeah. 
Um, we'll talk about the Blackfires in just a second, but I want to loop back to Diana's identity through looks and clothes. And I mean, Blackfire is an identity invented from her. But in the description that George gave to Amok, the identity of what she wears, it reminds me a lot of what we see with Aegon V. Because, you know, she would don plain serving girl, kitchen girl outfits and sneak out. And her Targaryen hair and eyes that George so lovingly, uh, you know, affectionately describes as beautiful and gorgeous and wild, they're actually a curse to her. You know, she can't get away from it. It's what anchors you to this identity. Aegon IV legitimizing his bastards gives Dana the first bit of agency she's had in a very long time. Because locking those girls up, like I said, wasn't just because Baylor was a pious crazy guy or a pious prick. Those girls represented power. The fact that people alone were debating if Dana should take the throne or not means that they were thinking about it, which means that she alone mm-hmm. could have started a coalition against him if she had the resources and the ability. We know so little about the behind the scenes details without fire and blood two coming, you know, the expansion expansion. Pack. Uh, that's what the expansion pack. Chloe the tell DLC. Us, yeah. Tell us about your Sims expansion packs. That's what does interest me so much about this little era, this bubble of Aegon III and his line, because we know that Baylor burnt knowledge, and we know what knowledge being burnt or destroyed represents. It means fear. It's fascinating it doesn't really get treated like that by a lot of people that analyze it. The religious cover is usually the main narrative that's spun with these motifs alone. You have so many references Mm. to popular literature, culture. I mean, Caesar burning Alexandria, while mostly debunked by scholars at this point in full, it's a retold tale. It's very, very much so there in stories. Uh, Bishop Diego de Landa burning Aztec and Mayan manuscripts in the 1560s because they were full of heresy. These were, in one way or another, moves of power, of control. And that is what Baylor sought. He wanted to achieve a level of, like, a Nirvana cabal. He thought he was the chosen one, right? That's why he did some of the things he did. The whole touch of him, you know, uh, walking on snakes to save his brother, yada yada, whatever. It's great, though. That's his big religious. Baylor was such a blessed man. And Sansa, we learn in A Storm of Swords, she's like, no, he was holy. What are you talking about, Tyrion and Oberyn and Ilaria? You scarful people. But it turns out, like, no. He was just another power-consumed, hungry Targaryen king. These girls were put aside to rot, and people did know it. Like, people knew it. And some of them did try to do something. Viserys did. Bless him. You know, but yeah. but they sat there and wilted, right? And I mean, not to look at them like animals, but it is the prime of their youth. Like, this is the time to get them a good match, the time to solidify your line, the time to say, my sisters need to marry off and they need to marry a strong match. Like, if you're not going to fuck them, that's great. You probably shouldn't. You probably is really shouldn't. Weird. Yeah, like, just don't do it. That's good. Like, good job, Baylor. Step one, you might... Is Baylor the worst or is he the best? We don't know, actually. He's definitely I say not that. the best. You don't know that. You already said one Baylor is. Why not two? Um, no, I'm just kidding. But you're missing out on your prime real estate deal, Baylor. Like, either trade your properties, put hotels on the properties, or go to jail. I don't know. Or let them be people. Not property. Yeah, that too, exactly. Or upgrade them. 
to actual humans. But that's why Damon caused such a ruckus, right? Like, all the options sucked. It really raised some hairs across Westeros. It was half and half. Sure, the half that supported him weren't all willing to, like, go balls out to support him. But this is, like, what the DNC is afraid of, right? Uh, he was charming and well-raised. And it turns out people are really afraid of people who aren't like them. And Westeros is really racist. And the Dornish Alliance thing totally freaked half of Westeros out. They're like, no, like, make Westeros great again. Um, they they thought that Blackfire being given to him meant he was the true heir, right? Like, there was some conspiracy. And we're going to see a lot of these signs of legitimacy come back in the Winds of Winter with Aegon Sixth, And it's probably going to give him some really superior strength. Yeah. In the race. Yeah. Seeing a lot of that. And it is interesting, right, um, that it has roots in... Maybe women's power being torn away, but... Yeah, absolutely. Same kind of idea, right? Yeah. His rebellion was hard and fast, and it ended just like that, right? Hard and fast. I mean, Damon's one year, not the Blackfire Rebellion, that was obviously ongoing through history, but Damon himself, I mean, he obviously launched it all, and he was kind of a semi-worthy candidate. I know he was kind of a tool for some of it, but he does, like... He battles uh, the Corbray on the King's Guard and then gets the upper hand after an hour of the battle. And then he stops and sends the wounded King's Guard off to get medical attention, which this is, of course, where his demise comes in, where his heir, him and his heir's twin, Aegon, Aegon and Aemon, all die. Uh, and the rebels slowly get shut down and it's over. And that was it. That was your one year Blackfire Rebellion on the red grass field. Yeah, I mean, so... I just like Darren the Good more. I just Why like him both? more. Uh, because one of them didn't say that they raised a rebellion because they couldn't marry, I don't know, one of their other relatives eight years after it happened. I don't know. I like him, but I like Damon just because he's like, I don't know, he's like, what, if John was bad? Sure. He's like Draco Malfoy. And, and I think he's interesting as a character. I just like, in ju- as a person, right? If I had to pick someone... Yeah. Like, I like Darren more. I get him. He's bookish. Well, maybe it doesn't have to be a competition between Darren and Damon. I guess it was, actually. And I guess Damon lost. Yeah, but- <laughs> Damon, Damon was the one who made it like that. <laughs> uh, well, he was a bastard. He didn't know. Leave him alone. I don't know. Dana is the Nega Liana here. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yes. Absolutely. Like, she is like the Nega Liana. She definitely is. And it's so interesting that George has included that sort of prototype in Dana. Oh, and even the yeah. tower, you know, tower. Well, mm-hmm. granted, the maiden vault, not necessarily like tower, but still. Liana, Different salvation. Also in a tower. I think, you know, what really sealed it for me this time was the realization that Baylor, like, burnt books. Like you were saying, it has to do with fear. But, like, that's what really made me realize that... Baylor is a tyrant because what he's trying to do there is he's trying to control knowledge. And like you see it in a lot of other dictatorships, right? Like um, the way that like during the cultural revolution, right? There was a stamp down on the kinds of fiction, kinds of ideas, Mm. books that were allowed to be peddled, things like that. Um, For all the reasons that you said, like Baylor's sisters were a threat to him because someone could build a coalition to get one of them seated instead of him. Like, it would be hard for Viserys to do that for himself as the uncle, but I wouldn't put it past Viserys, who's the son of, you know, the woman who was trying to do the same thing. Like, 
but for himself as the uncle, the narrative never plays well. It always looks bad, as you were saying, right, with all the uncles who poison their nephews to gain the throne. But anyway, if we look at all the things that Baylor was doing, like, it just screams tyranny. He was like, I'm going to try to hatch dragons. And I mean, he failed, obviously, but like one of the books, as you said, that Baylor was so intent on having burned was Septon Barth's Dragons, Worms, and Wyverns. And I think, as opposed to it necessarily just being heresy, I think Baylor was afraid of others knowing more about dragons and these other creatures and the ability to hatch them or, like, tame them or anything, especially maybe his sisters, especially with Dana out there, like, mm-hmm. saying, I was born to ride a dragon, and Elena's, like, favorite egg? possession. Yeah, her egg. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's a control thing. It was those two that are most pointed, and it, now that you say, like, the testimony of Mushroom, especially with his sisters being locked up, and the testimony of Mushroom, so much of it being about the dance, and in some ways, not entirely, but humanizing Rhaenyra... I yeah, know. I think it was very obvious that, I mean, after so long, yes, you can say, oh, a woman, you remember the war that came last time, but then it's like, wait, aren't almost all the wars also involving men? Truth. Truth. What happens when they wake up and learn that? They're never gonna. Wake up, Westeros. <laughs> wake up, dragon people. Dreeple. I don't know. <laughs> Dreeple. Um, Dreeple. <laughs> Nettles says oh wake God. up. Sheeple. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, I mean, as you're saying, people always couch it as Baylor doing things in the name of the faith, and that's what he said. Maybe he believes it, maybe not. I think there must be some aspect to it, right? But, like, mm-hmm. there's nothing necessarily, as far as we know, in the tenets of the faith that calls for the isolation of women, nor the celibacy of the king, right? Some people who take those oaths, like Septons, yes, but not all of them. And I think that there's something to be seen in the septons that he chose, like, mm-hmm. and his desire to have control over that entire religious aspect of Westerosi life. We've talked about it in a couple of other episodes, like The Power of the Faith. It might not be magical, right? We don't see any exhibit that they exist as a supernatural force, but it is a powerful force in politically and in mobilizing large groups of people as we see in a couple of the in the faith militant and a couple of the riots that have existed and his choices for high septon are an illiterate stonemason who doesn't even know the prayers and then an eight-year-old boy and like yeah i like i I could see that these could be construed as the acts of an insanely pious man or whatever but i think it's telling to me that both of these appointees don't have much knowledge or the ability to gain it and are therefore incredibly impressionable and controllable it also kind of makes me wonder i mean because there was that switch right of i'm not gonna have kids with you and you now live in the maiden vault Hmm. to dana um it almost makes me wonder if he read something, you know, very much like Rhaegar, who read a scroll and then said, I must be a warrior. Like, was that that scroll? Right. And did he, after failing to hatch dragons, snap and go, I don't have to have kids now because it won't come from me? Right. I I mean, it could be that. It could be, again, 
heralding back to that Greek myth and that playing it out this way. And then, as you said, Mm -hmm. him reading something in the way that Rhaegar did. That is what I'm thinking. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting theory. I think that holds water, especially, and we might see more of it in Fire and Blood 2. I'ma write it. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) Everyone, you heard it here first. Chloe said she's going to write it. She's going to put it on her blog. I meant your idea. (laughs) But that too. I just thought we were holding me accountable for what I say I'm going to do. Oh, yeah. Now that we use like our podcast to make commitments. Guilt ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Guilt's guilt's healthy. Um, uh, How I cope. Oh, my God. So, speaking of guilt and faith, um, just faith, <laughs> it's theorized in world that Baylor might have been killed, you know, if he was killed and not just stupid and fasted himself to death, because he might have had a plan to make the Faith of the Seven the only religion in Westeros. And I think that's interesting to think about because the implications of that or it would have meant a full-on war with the other kingdoms, especially with the North. So I kind of think it's like, no wonder he tried to hide his political competition. Like, the Maiden Vault wasn't only populated by them, too, if you think about it, right? The Maiden Vault, in and of itself, not just his three sisters, but lords and knights who wanted to curry favor with Baylor, and those would have probably been from all over the Seven Kingdoms, sent him their Maiden Daughters, And as we've seen used a couple of times already in the main story, that's easily turned into political hostages, right? Like, the Maiden Vault was not just a religious move, it was a political move. Yeah, uh, everything he did kind of was. Like, I'm starting to really think there were obvious reasons for the things he did, including that. And not only that, but I'm surprised that he thought so little of women in general that he thought maybe leaving these girls in there would be smart because I'm just saying, when you get some girls together, you know what we do? We start gossiping. That's well, true. Someone must have helped Dana get out every now and then. Not Raina. It wasn't Raina. We know that. <laughs> like who lied for her? Little lady Bulwer lied and said that she went to her chamber pots. I don't know. Probably. Know? Probably had some girls standing in for her too, right? Like the way it was with Marcella and, Oh, yeah. I hope so. And her handmaiden. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, fuck. Um, But, like, you know, returning to that idea of dragon riding, it's telling that Dina is known for the line of saying that she should have been a dragon rider. But unfortunately, yes, all the dragons were gone. And it's something, it speaks to something that we had discussed uh, in Fire and Blood, especially upon its release that the dragons were a means for the Targaryen women to exert political power through the use of force, and that the dance of the dragons through the death of the dragons uh, signals the end of that for Targaryen women. And um, I've seen online, you know, I've talked about this a bit online, and people have kind of twisted what I've said regarding this. Like, yes, dragons were crucial for women, but mostly just Targaryen women holding political power in Westeros. Without the dragons, they were subject to the whims of Targaryen men, and the patriarchal, like, misogynist political structures of Westeros. And it's possible that in Valyria, right, um, 
they might have had a slightly more gender egalitarian, unsure structure because of the dragons, but I don't think that's something that we're necessarily sure of, especially with the way that polygamy seems to have only worked in such a way that the the husband could have multiple wives and not the other way around. So I wouldn't say that it necessarily was egalitarian. Um, and that's why I don't say that the solution, I've seen people like take what I've said and say that the solution is give women or give the Targaryen women dragons because that sort of system continues to uphold a status quo where political power where humanity in general is afforded based on a system of physical slash martial power. And that's how you end up with the very system that we have here, this very situation that leads to a situation like the Maiden Vault, where someone can place their sisters or any of their family members there for 10 years at a time and think that it's fine because Dana, Reyna, and Elena and all of the other maidens, right, who were sent to live with them, all of them should have had a full range of choices in their lives, regardless of whether or not they had dragons. Dragons are not the answer. The answer is the ability to recognize everyone else's humanity, because everyone should have the ability to, to determine the course of their lives. They should have that freedom, and those should be protected, especially if they do not have power, because that's what equity is. That those who don't even have power can live to their full potential. It reminds me of like Sansa riding in the Bailey, you know, like riding her horse in circles. Like that's not real power. That's what those girls had. Like, yes, they got to be in a room full of other young maidens and they had servants attending their every every single whim, but that wasn't a life. No, it wasn't. I think that's why the Maiden Vault is such a crucial turning point when it comes to the intersection of gender and politics in Westeros, because like, it's not just, as we've discussed, Baylor removing his political opponents, and it's not just yeah. an expression of his alleged faith, of which we see no reinforcement of this in, in any of the doctrines that we've seen of the Faith of the Seven, like... The decade-long confinement of Dana, Reyna, and Elena, and, like, the use of the Great Council of 101 and the outcome of the dance, again, like, all of these Bar Targaryen women, women in general, right, from inheriting the throne through their own accord, and it sets a precedent in general across Westeros for the ownership of women, royal or otherwise, that, yes, already existed, but even more so by their husbands or not their husbands, right? Their family members, because Baylor is an extremist. He's a religious extremist. And that's characterized by this misogyny of denying his sisters those fundamental rights to mobility, that freedom of movement. Like, sure, Planetos has no concept of inalienable human rights, but the mobility, freedom of movement is listed in the real world's UN Declaration of Human Rights as a something that's inalienable, what humans are born with. No one can take that from you, even though people might violate it. And what Baylor did was he took 10 years of the lives of these women, one of them a girl, just a, a, all of them were girls when they went in there. Yeah. He stole a lifetime from them. He did. He stole like a huge portion. It, and I think that's what infuriates me most, right? Like... Dana, you know, as you said earlier, like Dana would dress as a servant to escape sometimes. And I do think that's kind of interesting when it comes to the performance and like reinforcement of gender. Like, did 
being a lower class afford her that mobility, right? Though, of course, it sacrifices then class and political power because those have been stolen from her. And along with Liana, then you end up kind of seeing these parallels between Dana and other characters like Cersei dressing as servants in order to escape like the watch of their families to do, I don't know, weird shape things like, I don't know, sleep with their family members. Apparently that's what you do when you sneak out as a servant. Um, it's like, but that is the thing. Like uh, those girls, like for them being a Targaryen wasn't fun no. for the girls. Uh, if you were a boy, you had that to look forward to. And some of them were angstier than others, but you had that to look forward to. And if you were a girl, you did not. You were sold off. Whether to your brother, whether to your cousin, whether to some other person in Westeros that you're probably fucking related to somehow. Literally fucking related to. And I think that's that's the problem, right? Like, people talk about it within the, the concept of, like, that, I don't know, the Targaryens did it for racial purity. But the precedent of the Maiden Vault in codifying that misogyny in Westeros opens a door for even more. It it's like yeah. you said you're sold off to within the family and by reinforcing that that binds women even further into a family that's already like proven itself to be abusive to women it justifies the control of Targaryen men over women they they have no means to even try to escape through a different marriage alliance right like it codifies their abuse and I think that Twitter user fangirl Jean like pointed this out very well like with the fact that you know you see it in Nerys. Right, as she marries Igan the Fourth, or with Rhaella and Ares the Second, like they were forced to by the system that asks of them quote unquote racial purity to marry abusive family members. Yeah. So I mean that's a job. We see it with actual queens, obviously, which we'll talk about some of that when we get into some tutorism later with the Maiden Vault, but um, that's a fucking job. Like, you're not just signing up for true paradise with your brother cousin. No, they're signing up for, like, hell with their brother cousin, now husband, who now gets to say that they completely own them in all aspects through this, and... I don't have siblings, but if you grew up with an annoying brother, imagine if you had to marry them. Yeah, imagine if you had to marry a horrible, abusive brother, which is what happened to most, right? Yeah, of the Targaryen <laughs> women. So it, a good amount. And like Dana, in a way, kind of tried to find a way out of this, right? She, like Cersei, kind of tries to use her sexuality to get out of it. She sleeps with her cousin Aegon the Fourth, as we've discussed, and tried to get pregnant. And I do think that that's an interesting subversion of the idea of the Maiden Vault. That's her way of protest, because if she's pregnant, it shatters, it shatters the narrative. It shatters the illusion of what the Maiden Vault is, of purity, and shows it for a farce. It, it doesn't exactly, but she's. it sounds like maybe she's trying to get herself some sort of protection, political protection, by being pregnant, and especially if it's the child of Aegon IV, because, I mean, it's kind of cruel, right? It, the optics are cruel to keep a mother locked up. Yeah, and A, Aegon was a great choice, right? Like, we know that he's not too far down the line. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we learn later on that he's also pretty generous, pretty pretty open-handed, Right, when it comes to bastardry. And 
Just not to his tree-born know, kids. It's all she could do, right? Like, she couldn't, like you said, those years were stolen. Those political plays were stolen. They don't have the power to do that anymore. They didn't get to escape by marrying some fat old lord that's going to die in ten years after you have a few of his kids. Yeah. They didn't even get that opportunity, dude. No, they didn't. They, They didn't even get to, like, fucking ride horses. Yeah, they just had to live in a fucking tea room their whole life. Yeah, pretty much. So damn, like I, they couldn't even like choose to do things. They couldn't choose to be there. Couldn't choose to leave, and that it's just infuriating for me. I just need you to know that, like, when I was eighteen, my parents were like, "We're moving up into a place that's in basically near the wilderness, and much smaller amount of people live here, and uh, you you can go to college there." And I'm like. Mm. No, and I moved to a city. Like, that's literally yeah. what happened when I was 19. So imagine not even being able to make those mistakes. Yeah, they couldn't make mistakes. They couldn't even make successes. They it, Their lives were stolen. That's probably the worst part of this to me. Um, and uh, obviously, Dana is the main character of the Maiden Vault, right? Uh, yeah. Very obviously. But we'll get to Elena in a bit. Elena has a pretty strong backstory as well. To make up for that kind of side uh, side stashing of the character. But we are going to talk about Reyna Targaryen in a bit here briefly. Because very briefly, she has barely anything about her. <laughs> she really does. Like, this is, I don't know, one of literally two lines about her in the world of Ice and Fire. Of Baylor's other sisters, Reyna was almost as pious as her brother and in time became a septa. That's so, a, yeah. That's like a. That's it. We get more yeah. information about her in the So Spake Martin that we keep referencing, where he explained to a mock what they looked like. Like, that's. It's literally. That, that So Spake Martin literally has more information about Reyna than all of the world of ice and fire. But you know what? Reyna was a fucking snitch, so maybe it's fine, all right? She apparently had no problem being placed in the maiden vault, unlike her sisters. Um, internalized misogyny is a hell of a drug. Yeah, especially when George writes it into your character. Yeah, true, true, true. Damn. Uh, in the So Spank Martin, we learned that Reyna was dutiful, meek, and passive. When older, she was heavily influenced by her brother, Baylor the Blessed, and became very pious. Unlike her sisters, she never chafed at her confinement in the Maiden Vault, and in later life she joined the faith and became a septa. Now, I get that she's supposed to contrast Dana, right? She doesn't uh, oppose Dana, though, per se, so she comes across as just passive, yeah. and she really exists for Aegon IV, mm. which is kind of over, and for Baylor, which is why all that's written about her is like, she was pretty like Dana, but not hot, but not not hot, and her body was soft, but not too soft, and she was pious and meek. Like, that's it. That's her character. Um, Actually, though, not a joke. And now I want to play devil's advocate like I do with myself, mm. because I like to think about the subtext that that line, especially that that is what she did. She joined the faith, became a septic. Like, this is just it. This is her character. I think there's a lot between the lines that George will hopefully give us when he does come back. She almost reminds me of, like, the Jane Seymour of Baylor's sisters. Huh. A lot of people regard Jane Seymour as, like, oh, she was Henry's biggest love, but she died, like, two weeks after she birthed him a son. Hmm. 
That's the least he could fucking do is bury her next to him. Like, I'm just saying. It's true. You push a squalling, screaming shithead out of your vagina and then you die two weeks later? That's the least you can do. She... I think that maybe she chose to be a septa because that was her way to freedom, right? It reminds me a lot with the pious and meekness of Sansa, who went to the Godswood to pray that she can get the fuck away from the Lannisters. Hmm. Maybe that was her only way to freedom. Living a life as a septa would definitely be better than living a life in the Maiden Vault, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it is. And it reminds me a little bit of Rayella, but maybe not Rayella, depending on, you know twins were switched or not they were switched um reyna's twin daughters right like she she was like i don't know i'm kind of like just quiet and i maybe i just want to chill i feel like there's always one right like there's vaya as well um who was very like quiet there's god there's so many i mean even uh, Bela's sister, Reyna, was more on that side of things as well. So it's interesting that this is kind of the namesake for that, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like, everyone's different. They have different things. It's just like, yeah. she could have at least not wanted to be thrown into a vault. Yeah, I mean, uh, not all of them have different things when you really boil it down. You have the Liana. Yeah. She likes horses and she has a wild beauty. Boyish, but gorgeous. Not like other girls. Yeah. But maybe, maybe like other girls, maybe like their youngest sister. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm guessing that we don't know how Raina died, just like we don't know how Dana died, because mm-hmm. George was saving those deaths to write them and figure out how he wants to loop things together in Fire and Blood 2. A lot of Aegon Third's reign is a mystery, including these bits. And I think that the timeline-wise, 2001, George kind of didn't know all the details. He knew about the Maiden Vault. He knew about Damon Blackfire. He knew what he wanted to do with Aegon IV, uh, giving it to Damon instead of Darren. And it's pretty clear he was really developing this idea more after A Storm of Swords, but yeah. he played with it as early as Hedge Knight in A Storm of Swords, even some Inklings in Clash of Kings. He obviously came to define what he wanted the sisters to be like by 2006 with the other So Spake Martin that we keep referencing, and lo and behold, now he's doing this huge anthology, which is like a free paid sandbox for him, I guess, but we'll see what it gives us. We'll see. Maybe we'll get some Reina content. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Like, as you said, we don't know how Dana died. Like, the wiki says maybe she might have died in, like, 171 AC or after, and I'm like, if she died in 171, which is, like, the year Baylor died and basically the year she was freed, I'm going to be furious. Yeah. I will be so mad. Be some bullshit. Yes. But, you know who didn't die then? Elena. Who? <laughs> Elena this, Targaryen. This chick lives forever. Good for her. I know. I think that, like, obviously Dana was the main focus, but Elena, George was like, you know, you're not the hot one, but I'm sure gonna give you a life. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> she got to experience yeah. things yeah oh no i was like what does that mean about george but well i yeah. think we know yeah i mean she did she got to have a whole ass life she had seven kids and she's like if the gods see right to grant me seven then i'm like i see you oh my god oh my god she was so like she was entrepreneur of the year she yeah. has her mba she does she's like i'm a businesswoman um 
Apparently, George, in this, uh, the world of Ice and Fire, he describes her as not as beautiful as her sisters, right? Like, that's yeah. her descriptor. It's literally, like, one of the first things we learned about her in the world of Ice and Fire. At least, like, other things, I guess, were said about her in the SSM, but it's just, like, Elena, the youngest, was more willful than Reyna, but not as beautiful as either of her sisters. Okay. While in the Maiden Vault, it is said she cut her quote-unquote crowning glory, her long hair, platinum pale, with a streak of gold running through it, and sent it to her brother, pleading for her freedom with the promise that, shorn as she was, she would now be too ugly to tempt any man. Her pleas fell on deaf ears, however. I love those little moments of them trying to take control and retain these bits of themselves. I'm over here shouting, like, leave Elena alone, right? Like, she was a Britney moment. Yeah, and that was her attempt at outwitting her way to freedom. And also while saying, this isn't what gives me value or makes me valuable, like, she's controlling any part of her own narrative that she can. Yeah, and in doing so, and trying to be like, oh, I'm not beautiful anymore, can I, like, fucking leave? Like, in in doing so, that highlights the cruelty of her brother, that he wouldn't even listen to his 11-year-old sister. Yeah. For sure. And, uh, yeah. They were just kids. They were kids. They were all kids. So Elena's most prized possession was a dragon egg that matched her hair. And although she wasn't the most beautiful, she ended up having the most children and the most lovers out of all of them. And she was actually a career woman. Yes. Elena was, what is, CFO of Westeros. We're not there yet. It's... Yeah, so even though Dana, we don't know what happened. We don't know when she died. Big-ass range between, like, 171 and the rest of all fucking time for her to have died or not. In many ways, Elena, I think, feels like a good corollary for what we don't get post-made involved about Dana, right? Like, Elena becomes that sort of legacy with her own spiritedness and wit, and she's able to define a life for herself even after the Maiden Vault, and she assumed that political power again as CFO of Westeros. Yeah, she does kind of get to go on to have a life, doesn't she? It's kind of nice. Yeah. She had lovers, like one of her first ones, and allegedly her great love, right, was Alan Valerian, whom you all may remember. She had two bastard children by them, John and Jane Waters, even though he was married to Bela Targaryen, whom you also all might remember. You've uh, heard of her. Yeah. Uh, she she hoped to marry Alan. I think maybe, like, Bela was dead, but I don't know. At that time, though, at the very least, of uh, the, the children, he was married to Bela. And I just want to say, you know, I want to remind everyone about the Valerians. Adam Valerian, my son. Loyal. Alan Valerian. Okay, not loyal. (laughs) Yeah, part of this story gets a little less charming to me when George is just like, and then she married this one, and then she had this one, and then she did this, and she had this kid. Um, It's kind of like he just lumped it on her, you know, like, and then you married this one, and you were this thing. Like, I love it, but at the same time, I'm just curious why... What is the reason for all of this backstory, George? Is there a reason, or is it just something you really thought of? I think, you know, in the way that Baylor never thought to use his sisters as marriage pawns, Darren the Good, I guess, was like, 
sure, I guess I'll do this. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Her first husband was Ossifer Plum, who died during the bedding. Elena still happened to conceive somehow, though, and birthed a Viserys Plum. Yes. You guys know some plums. You might recognize Brown Ben from the main series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, actually where how Tyrion ends up pondering in this story, like, ah, yes, the two drops or so that the Plum family allegedly has of Targaryen blood uh, is because of Elena and Viserys Plum. Because even when though he died during the betting, she still conceived. It's also where the joke about uh, the Plum family or someone having like a, such a long dick, they can impregnate someone from the grave comes from. But there is also the theory that it's actually Aegon the Fourth who fathered the series Plum. So again, that's where the speculation about the Plum blood, the, about the Targaryen blood within House Plum comes from. That was hard Brother to say. Brother Clucker. I can't believe that her and Dana are also Igloo sisters. Up top. Woo! Woo! Um. <laughs> you really did that? I did. They and, really did You know, that. it's not the only plum. Not the only plum that we meet in the story. That's a Targaryen? Absolutely not. There's also maybe... Maynard? Fake plum. Oh, What's a fake plum? Interesting that you Victory? think Maynard Plum is a Targaryen. And I feel like the real answer to this one is shrouded in gray mist. So Elena's <laughs> next marriage was arranged by King Darren the Good to his master of coin, Ronal Penrose. During this time, Elena proved herself underpaid her entire life because, turns out, instead of putting women in vaults, Elena put money in the vault. She was a great master of coin, a master manipulator of capital, and the mastermind behind the finances of the realm. Even when Penrose died, she treated with the Iron Bank using her next husband's name. She had four kids with Penrose, four of her seven, Robin, Lena, Jocelyn, and Joy. Yes, in the context of what happened to Elena and her sisters, I do think it's noteworthy that, like, it seems like none of Elena's marriages were with houses that could rival House Targaryen in power. And maybe it just happens like that, right? Maybe none of them had, like, bachelors. But I do think that part of it is that, like, the alliances forged by Darren, and of course, like, some of it is from love, right? Uh, later on. Uh, but I don't know, based on the experiences that Elena had growing up, like, she spent her entire adolescence in prison. Like, I don't think it's surprising that she'd be reluctant to have a husband that could wield that sort of power over her again. And I think that Dana is like an exploration in many ways of like what could have been in terms of leaders with her charisma and athleticism. A lot of it is something that we see in the reasons why people support Damon. Dana just, like, had the wrong body, right? And I think it's part of it, part of why so many people rally to his cause. Elena is an exploration that, like, you know, even so as a woman, they are every bit as capable of running Westeros as the men. And it sounds like in many ways better sometimes because, you know, they're just people. She was absolutely, I, I would imagine, crucial to building back the wealth of the realm after what was a very costly and bloody war that lasted like a year. Yeah, in a way, there are definitely some Cersei undertones mm-hmm. when you think about Dana. 
um, and her bastard, you know, and I mean, Rhaenyra as well, obviously. There's the obvious that we all sit here and think about Rhaenyra in general as an allegory for a woman on the throne because it's the closest we've really come. Um, but Cersei right now is probably the next closest, and it's the same idea. So it's this theme of women clinging to power in the ways that they can. And Elena got really lucky with some of these matches that, yes, okay, fucking Ossifer Plum and having him die mid-fuck is not not really optimal. I'm going to agree, and maybe not the best marriage, right? Like, maybe not a blessed marriage. It was like all of three seconds. Yeah, I mean... Miranda Royce gets it, you know? Yeah. But you get down the list and she finally does eventually get along with other men. When Ronel passes, she ends up dating, well, dating. She ends up falling in love she marries with him. Sir Michael Manwoody and she marries him. Yeah. Yeah, and Michael Manwoody, I would like to throw out there. So, you know, as you said, Elena Targaryen has an MBA. Sir Michael Manwoody also has a degree. Oh, he went to liberal arts college. He did. He went to the Citadel, but he dropped out. So maybe he doesn't have a degree. I lied. You need to get your story straight. I lied. He dropped out of the Citadel. He must have because he's married. Um, The point is, Elena found him very cultured and witty. One of the big reasons she loved him was for his love of music. And Elena, not only is she good with money, she's a fucking hipster. And... (laughs) And Michael would play his harp for her, as she loved. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, he would not play uh, that that song that comes along in later years. You know, Jenny's song. Yeah. Oh, damn, that would be next level if he was seen to the future. Whoa, talk about prophecy. (laughs) She had a harp as his effigy on his grave. Oh. That's sweet. That is sweet. She's like, I like this about him, and he liked music. Oh. Yeah, well, name five albums by him, Eliana. Um, Michael, I, uh, man, Woody. I don't know. There's a lot of, I there's a lot know. of, um. You leave his wood out of this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like the aspect that in the end, she also got to escape the traumatic life that first sister kind of got to be in. Uh, She got married as mostly political arrangements and affection, but then in the end, her marriages kind of formed better, right? And her marriage structure is exactly what we see with Stannis and Solis, for example, with that match. Um, Hmm. It's that similar kind of match, right? That not a real big house that could take on the throne, but it was a very political and smart couple of pragmatic matches that were made for her. And it's kind of what Baylor missed out on when he locked them up. He missed out on all of this political prowess. If he had done this, his reign would have been stronger. Yeah. It makes me think that there is something like what you said, that he read something. But I gotta I gotta write that down because that's like It doesn't justify it. I feel like him reading something and him going down this line is what led to it. Like maybe he saw that like, oh, one of the his sisters or Dana or something would birth like a bloody or like a spin-off line or whatever, and he was like, Oh, can't can't impregnate her or whatever and if he had just done it. Yeah. But anyway, doesn't justify it. Well, 
let's take a breather and push ourselves into the future and to modern A Song of Ice and Fire. We have visited the past. We've talked about the maidens in the vault, but those aren't the only maidens that have visited that vault. Uh, we don't have a lot in between from this era and now, but we do know that Marjorie Terrell and her companions have been hanging out in the maiden vault. Yes, we have a quote. Lord Base Tarbell and his entourage have been housed behind the royal sept, the long slate-roofed keep that had been called the Maiden Vault since King Baylor the Blessed had confined his sisters therein, so the sight of them might not tempt him into carnal thoughts. <laughs> uh, Marjorie Terrell and her maidens. Outlook not so good, huh? No, I, I mean, no... No, growing strong, maybe not growing. Maybe just not. Maybe plucked. Wow, Sorry, dear. wow. Plucked. Someone's gonna say it. Someone's gonna say it there that the rose of <laughs> the rose of House Tyrell was plucked or something. Uh yeah, I mean it already probably was. They're gonna die. Damn. Um I don't know, they might not even die, but I, I imagine they're gonna die. There's obvious time for her to be accused of further things, or found a liar against the oath that she swore under the gods, which is, uh, I don't know, obviously Marjorie feels very Anne Boleyn, right? Mm. And that isn't the only Tudorism to pull with her. There is some Catherine of Aragon kind of political maneuvers around her, and the whole smiling for the camera bit, but Anne Boleyn kind of seemed completely set up in the end right and i think that's probably what's going to happen to marjorie no one needs marjorie if marcella returns interesting yeah that's definitely true like they'll be like oh here's just a different queen yeah no one needs tommen and no one needs marjorie it's like an easy way to let the faith deal with them and then deal with the faith yeah for sure and so the maiden vault is interesting though in and of itself like and how it plays out in this current story and with Marjorie. Like, I f what I find interesting is that by choosing to stay in the Maiden Vault, Marjorie has kind of, like, co-opted this monument to misogyny to fuel her own, like, political narrative and agenda and gain power through womanhood in that way. Like, Marjorie's been married at least once, right? Mm -hmm. She's older than either Joffrey or Tommen, so you know what people are thinking. Uh, and that becomes the subject of a lot of speculation in the realm. By staying in the Maiden Vault, Marjorie uses all of that to spell this narrative of purity and being like, oh, I'm still a Maiden. We weren't able to consummate everything, especially because she's like still celebrating the Maiden's Day. And then she like surrounds herself with a court of women. And we, we discussed in Sansa's chapters during our read through like the political strength and necessity of that. And the Maiden Vault under Marjorie, I think, becomes a hiding place for women to build that sort of power and political alliances through these networks, through their friendships. And it also provides that cover for secrets, right? Like Sansa's confession of Joffrey's terror, which then opens the door for Joffrey's assassination of the Tyrells, and then for Marjorie to climb to power. Uh, by marrying Tommen, and even Cersei tries to have some power over it, like, even though she's not very good at it, good at it, but, like, you know, there's a Tommen aspect, but by opening that door, maybe it does open the door, then, as you said, for Marcella to be like, well, I, too, a girl could have a claim. Yeah, and even more than that, I mean, it's who comes along with Marcella, right? You have Nymeria, mm -hmm. and you have the fact that Marcella's been trained for this, yeah. Uh, yes, she's, you know, missing part of her head, but uh, 
I mean, Marjorie will be soon, too, you know? Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Marcella's, like, really into chess, and by chess I mean Savas, but she's, like, really into it and good at it. Exactly. So she might have some play, but I do think it's more likely that Nymeria will have some uh, some influence over Cersei, because unfortunately, as we've learned, Cersei, if somebody tells her that she is the rock and roll goddess and that she's doing great, she'll be like, interesting, you're now my co-captain. <laughs> yeah, she's like, we're best you friends. trustworthy, you're now my best friend. Sleep with me in my bed. Exactly. There's this line about Marjorie, uh, this whole passage, there's this passage about the Maiden Vault. Cersei had not wanted Tommen and his wife to share a bed at all, but the Tyrells had insisted. Husband and wife should sleep together, the Queen of Thorns had said, even if they do no more than sleep. His grace's bed is big enough for two, surely. Lady Allery had echoed her good mother. Let the children warm each other in the night. It will bring them closer. Marjorie off shares her blankets with her cousins. They sing and play games and whisper secrets to each other when the candles are snuffed out. How delightful! Cersei had said, let them continue, by all means, in the Maiden Vault. Um, so it becomes kind of this place that uh, you're condemned to even then, right? Cersei does not want them to have political dealings with Tommen. She understands that the closer Marjorie gets to Tommen, the farther Cersei gets from Tommen. So she doesn't want that, and she wants them to stay in the Maiden Vault. Yeah, and to not escape from it, as you said. I mean... Cersei is trying to use the Maiden Vault, right, as to continue that sort of idea. Cersei, as we've discussed many times, is like embodiment of internalized misogyny. Yeah, absolutely. That's her middle name. It, it really is. <laughs> Cersei misogyny Lannister. <laughs> uh, that's why it's internalized. It's in the middle of, the, of her name. Um, Speaking of internalized misogyny... Do you feel like some of the Maiden Vault stuff is a very interesting allegory against Sansa's story? Because if Sansa is going to be a female leader who, you know, does it right in the end game of the story, a political ruler with, uh, you know, a little heat, bringing a little heat to the table with a sharp wit, clever mind, and able to, you know, just anticipate the next move by other people, um, she would be kind of a queen who survived. Right, or a princess who survived in the face of all of this uh, similar Maiden Vault-esque princess in the tower story. Yeah. Um, I think I think you could see that, right? Like, the movement from being a princess in the tower and then it becomes like, how do you become queen? That's what a lot of Feast for Crows seems to be trying to ask and figure out between Sansa and Arianne. Yeah. Cersei, Cersei herself tried to burn down a tower, right? And maybe that's meant to be symbolic in a way for that too. Yeah. And maybe something will happen to the Maiden Vault, right? Maybe instead of the Sept or something. I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. I'm, I don't I'm know. curious as to what I would like to see it involved somehow just because it was good enough to bring back. And I mean, yeah, look at Ariane. What is Ariane going to do to stay in power? Yeah. Uh, she's influenced, obviously, by Quentin and the idea of him being crowned or with Daenerys. And what well, what is she willing to do, right? Yeah, what would she do for Klondike Bar? 
Ariane. For Klondike Crown. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Marjorie, we know what the Tyrells are willing to do. That doesn't necessarily mean it was Marjorie's choice, but uh, she's in it to win it at this point, And to win it, we know that's lose it. And by lose it, I mean her head. But <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what would these people do for power? And obviously... I mean, you see the cover, the facade kind of blow when Marjorie straight up loses that innocent girlish smile and just, you know, bitches Cersei out, which is such a great moment. Yeah. And I mean, that's a thing, because even so, like, even while she is still trying to gain power through her femininity and using the maiden vault, she's still playing within the rules, right, of the patriarchy by having to keep up that innocent girl veneer. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's... Something that I think is, I don't know, just an interesting little parallel is that Anne Boleyn was not, uh, she was not really young when she married Henry, right? She was like 30s, I think, early 30s. And a lot of people kind of keep her memory as younger. And sure, she's coming from a different court, so maybe it's just the socializing was different. But a lot of people act younger, but it makes me wonder, you know, is it part of that innocent kind of facade? Yeah, but also, what if... Chloe, what if being in your early 30s is still young, you know? What if that's... I mean, (laughs) I'm going by mortality rate at the time. No offense. I'm just, you know. I'm just saying. What if your early 30s is still young? (laughs) Eliana, do you feel old? Sometimes. All the time. JK, all the time. I'm 10, so I don't have these issues. (laughs) Um... Man, who knew the Maiden Vault was so prosperous for us? We had so many good ideas, so many thoughts about Dana and Reyna and Elena uh, and Marjorie even and Sansa and girls. Yeah. I think about girls. Yeah. Often. Exactly. Also, the the original Maiden Vault that the books were based on from Ice and Fire Con 2017. The original Maiden Vault. Real it life. Makes sense. It makes sense. It really does. Go visit it. Mountain Lake Lodge. Dirty dancing happened there. George should be paying you royalties. <laughs> you guys, thank you for listening to our episode about the Maiden Vault. We wanted to kick it with some A Song of Ice and Fire content this month for Patreon. Um, you guys are not forgotten. I know we split our time between His Dark Materials and between A Song of Ice and Fire, but please do not feel weird about reaching out to us. Send us a message and let us know what you guys want to hear in the future for patron episodes. It's 2020, New Year, same us. Actually, though. (laughs) That's all I got, guys. That's all she wrote. Yeah, you already know all the things. You know where to find us. You made it here. Congrats. Thank you always. For your support. Yes, oh, by the way, so much. Uh, every now and then, apparently, uh, weekly horse pictures are a thing. Yes, you guys will see a weekly horse on Patreon now. It's going to happen. We'll keep it popping. We'll keep it moving. <laughs> We're fucking God. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. Thank we'll you. talk to you very soon. Goodbye. Bye.